Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 18, the sixth episode on the Sumerians. Last week, I covered the third dynasty of Ur until its collapse with the invasion of the Elamites and the ascending influence of the Amorites. If you missed it, you really should go back and give it a listen. This week, I intended to wrap up the Sumerians with a look into their culture, government, and military. But after writing the episode, I realized it was just a bit too much for just one episode. So I'm splitting this up into two separate episodes. The first will touch on the culture and government, then I'll do a little bit of a teaser on the military. I'll wrap it up next week with the technological innovations that the military provided the Sumerians. And then we'll get moving on. So let's get started. The Sumerian civilization was among the oldest urban civilizations on the planet. In Sumer, the first attempts at writing emerged to produce ancient cuneiform, a form of administrative language written as wedged strokes on clay tablets. And in ancient Sumer, the first detailed records written or carved in stone of military battles appeared. The cities of Sumer, first evident in about 4000 BC, provide the world's first examples of true urban centers of considerable size. In these early cities, especially in Eridu and Uruk, people first displayed the high degree of cooperative effort necessary to make urban life possible. Both cities reflected the evidence of this cooperation in the dikes, walls, irrigation canals, and temples which date from about the 4th millennium BC. An efficient agricultural system made it possible to free large numbers of people from the land, and the cities of ancient Sumer produced social structures comprised largely of free men who met to govern themselves. The early Sumerian cities were characterized by a high degree of social and economic diversity, which gave rise to artisans, merchants, priests, bureaucrats, and for the first time in history, professional soldiers. The Sumerian language dominated the culture of the region and was the language of legal, administrative, and economic documents. But, albeit slowly, the influence of Akkad could be seen throughout the region. New towns that arose during the Akkadian and subsequent Third Dynasty periods were virtually all given Akkadian names. After the collapse of the Akkadian state, the city-state of Lagash again grew under its independent kings who had extensive commercial communications with distant realms. According to their records, the ruler Gudia brought cedars from the Amnes and Lebanon mountains into Syria, diorite from eastern Arabia, and copper and gold from central and southern Arabia. This era was especially notable for artistic development, some of which survives to this day. At this time, and according to one estimate, Lagash was the largest city in the ancient world. Soon after the time of Gudia, Lagash was absorbed into the third dynasty of Ur as one of its prime provinces. The detailed documents from the administration of the third dynasty period exhibit a startling amount of centralization. Some researchers believe that no other period in Mesopotamian history reached the same level. The Third Dynasty kings oversaw many substantial state-run projects, including urban building projects, intricate irrigation systems, and the centralization of agriculture. Trading was also a large industry. The state employed independent merchants to run such commercial activities through a barter system and establish a standard system of weights. 
Later, coins made of copper, bronze, gold, or silver were produced in certain preset weights, so merchants could easily discern values. Textiles were a particularly important industry during the Akkadian Empire. Like most major endeavors of the time, the textile industry was run by the state. Many men, women, and even children were employed to produce wool and linen clothing. Researchers have many different views concerning the social structure of Sumer. It was long thought that the common laborer, a group that was the majority of the population, was nothing more than a serf. But new analysis and recently deciphered documents reveal a possibly different picture. Groups of laborers can be divided into various social strata. Certain groups did seem to work under compulsion. Others worked in order to keep property or to earn rations from the state. Still other laborers were free men and women, for whom social mobility was at least somewhat possible. Many families lived nomadically in search of employment. Such laborers could amass private property and even be promoted to higher positions. This is quite a different picture of a laborer's life than the previous belief that they were afforded no way to move out of the social group into which they were born. But, not to forget, slaves also made up a crucial group of labor for the state. One researcher estimates that up to 40% of the slaves mentioned in the surviving documents were not born slaves, but became slaves due to accumulating debt, being sold by their own family members, or other reasons. That seems like a family I would want to have nothing to do with. However, one surprising feature of this period is that slaves seem to have been able to accumulate some assets and even property during their lifetimes, so much so that they could potentially buy their freedom. This belief is supported by surviving documents that give details about specific deals for slaves' freedom negotiated with slave owners. But the documents do not show how often this actually occurred. The Third Dynasty was also a period where literature grew. Some scholars believe that the Uruk Epic of Gilgamesh was written down during this period into its classic Sumerian form. The kings of the Third Dynasty attempted to establish ties to the earlier kings of Uruk by claiming to be their descendants. Remember the king list? If you don't, just go back a few episodes. For example, the Third Dynasty kings often claimed Gilgamesh's divine parents, Ninsun, and Lugalbanda as their own parents, or at least somewhere back in their lineage, probably to evoke a comparison to the epic hero. Another text from this period, titled The Death of ur contains an underworld scene in which ur showers who he refers to as his brother Gilgamesh with gifts. During the Third Dynasty, the Sumerian language dominated the cultural sphere, and texts were essentially mass-produced in the period, and although the Semitic Akkadian language slowly became the spoken language, Sumerian continued to dominate literature and administrative documents. This may have been perpetuated because government officials learned to write at special schools that only used Sumerian literature. Intellectual life at the time of the Third Dynasty was probably active in the cultivation and transmission of older literature, as well as in the creation of new works. Although its importance as a spoken tongue was slowly diminishing, Sumerian still flourished as a written language, a condition that continued into the Old Babylonian period. In terms of ethnicities, Mesopotamia was as much a melting pot at the end of the third millennium as it had been earlier. 
The Akkadians were a building force, and the number of Akkadian speakers grew while the Sumerians shrank. A third group, first mentioned under Sharkali-Sharia of Akkad, were the Amorites. In the Third Dynasty, some Amorites had worked their way up to higher levels of government, but most of them still led a nomadic life. A fourth distinct ethnic group were the Hurrians, who were especially important in northern Mesopotamia and in the vicinity of the modern northern Iraqi city of Kirkuk. It is thought that the geographic size of the Third Dynasty was about the same as the Akkadian Empire, stretching from the Mediterranean to the Persian Gulf. Surprisingly, there is no evidence of any relations with Egypt, either in the Third Dynasty or even in the Old Babylonian period. It seems odd to me that no contacts existed at the end of the third millennium between the two great civilizations of the ancient Middle East. Historians virtually agree that the Third Dynasty was a strongly centralized state marked by the king's position as an absolute ruler. The highest state official reporting directly to the king during the Third Dynasty was the Shukoma, which literally translates to mean the Supreme Courier. This position may better be described as a state chancellor. The empire was divided into about 40 provinces, each ruled by a local leader who was empowered by both civil and judicial authority. Think of these guys as the local governor. These governors all reported to the Shukoma and served at his discretion, but occasionally the office was handed down from father to son. Their power was somewhat limited as they could not enter into alliances or wage wars on their own. But, in certain tumultuous regions, military commanders assumed more power in governing. The governors were appointed by the king and could also likely be transferred by him to other provinces, but this is a bit speculative. Each of these provinces was obliged to pay a yearly tribute, the amount of which was negotiated by emissaries. Of special significance in this tributary was a system generally translated as a cycle or rotation, in which the governors of the southern provinces took part. Among other things, they had to keep the state stockyard supplied with sacrificial animals. Although the province often corresponded to a former city-state, many others were also newly established. The so-called Land Register Text of Ur-Namu describes four such provinces north of Nippur, giving the precise boundaries. Each province contained what is probably best thought of as a collection center where provincial taxes, called Bala, would all go to be shipped to the capital. Taxes could be paid in various forms, from crops to livestock to land. The government would then apportion out goods as needed, including giving food rations to the needy, funding the government, and funding temples, not to forget supplying the defense of the area. And now, finally, I get to cover one of the more interesting aspects of the history of this region and time, and that is that of the military. Little is known about the military organization of Sumer in the 3rd millennium BC. We can judge from the Tablets Ashura pack, dated to around 2600 BC, that the typical city-state was about 1800 square miles, roughly 4,700 square kilometers, including all of its fields and lands. In this region, and at that time, it is estimated that such an area could sustain a population between 30,000 and 35,000 people. The tablets record a force of between 600 and 700 soldiers serving as the king's bodyguard, essentially a professional army. 
Given the size and structure of the society, a population of this size could support an army of regular and reserve forces numbering between 4,000 and 5,000 soldiers. With the tradition of an essentially conscripted labor force to maintain the dikes and temples, it's not a large leap to think that the same conscription could have been used to field an army. But it is thought that military confrontations of the era may not have required very large armies. After all, when an army is formed, it does not only require men, but also weapons, armor, food, and other supplies. Drafted troops would not usually be capable of the training and discipline necessary to wage war, and therefore they were not very effective. If they were used, they were likely armed with some rudimentary weapons or utilized in the support or logistics role. On the other hand, by 2400 BC, the Sumerian kings had largely turned their religious functions over to a professional priest and at the same time increased their civil functions and control. The kings essentially became the undisputed controllers of government resources. Moreover, it is not simply reasonable to expect that a society that organized well enough to control the Tigris and Euphrates rivers with an intricate system of dikes, canals, and bridges, and also maintain a sophisticated system of irrigation would leave the defense of such an investment to an unprofessional bunch of conscripts. The defense of the land was probably one of the more important roles of the king. Now I have been told that this statement is the result of my viewing history through my modern lens, but at the same time, history shows that, as unfortunate as it is, violence tends to win control of land. This was as true with the Sumerians as it is today. This period was marked by almost constant wars among the major city-states and against foreign enemies. Among the more frequent conflicts, owing primarily to the proximity, was with the southern city-state of Alam, located in present-day Iran. The conflict between the Sumerians and Elamites likely extended back for thousands of years, but the first recorded instance of war between them appeared in 2700 BC, when Emma Bargassi, the first king on the Sumerian king list, undertook a war against the Elamites and carried away as spoil the weapons of Alam. Ironically, this same geographic region would be fought over for the next many thousands of years, even into the 1980s AD, between Saddam Hussein of Iraq and the Ayatollah of Iran. So that's the episode for this week. Join me next week when I'll wrap up the Sumerians with a look into the technological innovations of their military. You don't want to miss it. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And if you're enjoying the podcast, also be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they're released. Go to iTunes and give the podcast a positive review. Of all the requests I make, this is probably the most important. A greater number of reviews increases the ranking, which in turn makes it easier for other listeners to find it. Also, one new request. If you recall how you initially found this podcast, such as the term you searched for that brought you here, send me a message via Facebook and let me know what led you here. This will allow me to fine-tune the web presence of the series. Thanks for listening, 
and have a great week.